0: Well, welcome to week 15 of our Believe series as we unpack what it means to live out the story of the Bible to become like Jesus. This 30-week journey takes us through what it means to think and to act and to be like Jesus. And as we've moved from the, the first 10 weeks, the key truths, to the key practices, we moved from thinking to acting. And so this week we'll continue our study there. And I want to start this morning telling you a little bit about... A woman named Janine. Janine is one of the the last people you'd expect to find in the Jaws of Hell, yet it's a place that she spent and has spent much of her time. The Jaws of Hell is the name of a prison, actually, in uh, Colombia. She is a uh, professor, she's a very serious academic woman. She's actually translated Hebrew grammar. Uh, two-volume Hebrew grammar, into Spanish. So this woman is a professor, very smart, very uh, intelligent. She's a Hebrew scholar. And this woman, however, is also known as a missionary. This calling flows from her work in, in the classroom. She says, I teach people who have had their fathers, their brothers, and their sons assassinated. I rarely have a class in any given year in which a student doesn't lose a family member to a violent death. Life is of little value. It's a deadly and dangerous world. But security is not the absence of danger. It's the presence of Jesus. One day, a girl named Margarita, one of her students, asked for help searching for her brother who had been missing for five days. Their search led them to the morgue in the city of Medellin, home to the infamous drug cartel of the same name. In Medellin, there's 25 deaths that occurred every single day, more than 100 on a typical weekend. At the morgue, she and the girl Margarita searched through more than a hundred bodies. Finally, they found the one they were looking for, as she heard Margarita cry out when she found her brother, who had been brutally tortured to death. And as Janine and the student cried together, a question exploded in her mind, and she said, What can I do? What can I do in this situation? Shortly after that experience at the City morgue, she was invited to speak at Bella Vista Prison, which had earned the nickname Jaws of Hell. In the mid 70s, the prison was built to house 1,500 inmates. By the end of the 80s, it had a population of 6,600 dangerous criminal drug lords, terrorists, and assassins for hire. Dead bodies, some of them decapitated, littered the prison floor and walls were covered with graffiti, often written in blood. Prison riots were commonplace, and Bella Vista averaged about 45 murders per month. That's inside the prison. Often the guards were so terrified they refused to pass through the prison gates to come to work. The prison had become essentially a training ground for the Medellin killing fields. Once outside the prison walls, either through parole or escape, a Bella Vista ex-con would likely join the ranks of the city's 3,000 contract criminals, criminals who specialize in blackmail, kidnapping, and murder. Or you could join any of the more than 120 different gangs. All were ready to kill for money. According to the Colombian newspaper, the country was averaging 25,000 murders a year. And Medellin was a major source of the country's problems. So not surprisingly, the invitation for Janine to go to Bella Vista left an unassuming female missionary and professor feeling inadequate and terrified. But she clung to the scripture verse in Proverbs 28.1 that says, The wicked flee when no man pursues, but the righteous are bold as a lion. And standing in front of her criminal audience, she preached about God's love. And as she concluded, 23 men crying came forward to dedicate their lives to Jesus. And that was the beginning of the ministry that Janine began in this prison. Which continues... She soon launched a Bible training school within the prison. She would spend two days a week inside the prison, teaching inmates and witnessing to them about Jesus, also witnessing to the guards. When they graduated from the Bible school, they got a diploma from the actual seminary that the president of the seminary came and gave to them. This continued until the prison was transformed. It became known as a model prison. The crime reduced. The murder stopped. So much so that when September 11th occurred in our country, the prisoners of this prison in Columbia began to pray and carved out of wood some praying hands, which was then delivered to President Bush, and he kept on his desk. This is the story of the impact that one woman could make, as the jaws of hell was transformed into a model of what Jesus could do in somebody's life. As Janine continues her, her ministry there, I think of the quote that she said, security is not the absence of danger, it's the presence of Jesus. You see, Janine wasn't trying to cling to her own life. If she was, she wouldn't have gone into the jaws of hell. She wasn't trying to set up her own security system. Instead, she clung to Jesus. Jesus was her security. And today, as we look at the idea of total surrender, we need to keep this in mind. A genuine decision to follow and obey God is a decision of total surrender. We leave nothing off the negotiation table. We're all in. That's our response. All in. When God the Father offered up his son for our redemption, he revealed how valuable we were to him. The gift of salvation was an act of total surrender by Jesus. Surrender to the Father's will, the Father's plan, total commitment. Jesus was all in. He went to the cross. All in. Question is: are, are you and I willing to respond in the same manner? Are you prepared to surrender your life for His purposes? A total surrender, a white flag surrender. You know what the white flag is, right? Okay. The white flag is when you say, "I'm done fighting. I'm, it's it. It's, it's over." Okay. I surrender. I surrender all. Until you put that white flag up, you're still fighting in some sense. You still think you have a chance to overcome. You still are going against the opposition. But when the white flag goes up, it's done. We're talking about a white flag situation. When you completely surrender. Our question that we want to answer today is, how do I cultivate a life of sacrificial service? Sacrificial service. You see, the truth is that I think we know, in our heads at least, that when Jesus calls us to come follow him, it means we're supposed to give up everything. But it's a lot harder for us to put that into practice. Watch this video as an intro to this today.
1: Not long after Jesus rose from the dead and returned to heaven, his followers traveled throughout the region, telling people all of what Jesus had said and done. As a result, many people chose to become followers of Jesus. Within a very short time, Jesus' group of followers grew from about 150 to several thousand people. Many religious and government leaders felt threatened by this growing movement and did whatever they could to try to stop people from teaching about Jesus. They targeted a particular follower of Jesus named Stephen, spreading rumors that he was saying blasphemous things about God. The rumors spread, and eventually Stephen was arrested and brought before the Sanhedrin, a group of priests designated to rule over the area. A number of witnesses stepped forward and testified against Stephen, saying that he was proclaiming that Jesus was coming back to destroy the Jewish temple and change the laws that were given by Moses. When the Sanhedrin looked at Stephen, his face appeared like an angel's. The high priest asked Stephen, are these charges true? Stephen started by sharing about Moses, how Moses had spoken on God's behalf and led the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt. The religious leaders in Moses' day rejected him, just like many of the other prophets God had sent over the years. Finally, Stephen compared the Sanhedrin to those leaders, telling them that they were responsible for putting Jesus to death. When the Sanhedrin heard this, they were so furious, they rushed towards Stephen, dragged him out of the city, and began to hurl stones at him. While they were stoning him, Stephen Lord, receive my spirit. He then fell to his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. After he said this, Stephen died. Stephen was the first follower of Jesus who was killed for their commitment to follow God.
0: Stephen was all in. Stephen had surrendered, totally surrendered to God and his plan. Stephen could have escaped that stoning. All he had to do was say a few words to distance himself from Jesus. We'll see how this unfolds in a few minutes in some other passages of Scripture. The martyrdom of Stephen sets the tone in a sense. This is in the early chapters of the book of Acts. You'll find the story in Acts 6 and 7. As the church begins to grow, and it has not stopped. In fact, some estimate that more people are dying today than have ever died in the past for their faith. Now, you and I don't see it, so it's out of sight, out of mind, and we really don't grasp it. But this is what it means to have a white flag, totally surrendered, totally devoted faith. Look with me at Romans chapter 12, verse 1. The Apostle Paul writes, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual worship. So the way we worship God is we give him our life. We give him our bodies. This key verse tells us how to live our lives as a living sacrifice. That we are to present our bodies to God, our full selves to his plan. See, your body is how you live out your life. You, your body is part of who you are. You're not just your mind. You're not just your heart. Your body is part of who you are. Your arms, your legs, etc. That, that is how you live in this world. See, we're not just spirit creations. We're physical creations. And so Paul is challenging us that we put our entire self on the altar to God. In Galatians chapter 2, verse 20... Paul also writes, he says, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. So here Paul explains further about this idea of how we live our lives for Christ. We live in such a way that it is Christ living through us, and it's no longer us that lives. We have died, and Christ lives through us. What's this really mean? What's it look like? As you look at the idea of being a living sacrifice and of letting Christ live through you, Paul's painting a picture of what it means to really follow Christ, to be his disciple. Jesus said it a little differently, but he's talking about the same thing when in Matthew 16 and verse number 24, Jesus says to his disciples, if anyone wants to come with me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. So we're going to dig into this passage a little bit today. You see, the Apostle Paul, writing in Romans and Galatians, is, is saying something very similar to what Jesus says to his first disciples. In this passage, okay, note the similarities, the ideas with Romans 12 Galatians 2. All three passages are saying that we have to say no to ourselves and yes to God. That's right. All three passages indicate that this is an all-encompassing commitment, an all-encompassing devotion, an all-encompassing lifestyle. It's an all-in white flag moment. Total surrender. You're done fighting. So if you're still fighting Jesus on something that he's trying to do in your life, then you're not white flag yet. You're not totally surrendered yet. The type of Christianity that we're talking about here is not something that we're comfortable with in the Western world. Despite a rebound of many books on this subject in recent years, books like Radical by David Platt, All In by Mark Batterson, Don't Waste Your Life by John Piper's Piper, sorry, no S at the end of his name. All of these books, John Piper, yes, Don't Waste Your Life, phenomenal book. These books that have reinvigorated a movement of, of totally commitment to, to Jesus. And, and yet, the, the larger landscape in Christendom, um, I think, misses, misses the point. Look at what Oswald Chambers has said many years ago. He writes, we tend to think that if Jesus Christ compels us to do something and we're obedient to him, he'll lead us to great success. We should never have the thought that our dreams of success are God's purpose for us. In fact, his purpose may be exactly the opposite. God's purpose is to enable me to see that he can walk on the storms of my life right now. If we have a further goal in mind, we're not paying enough attention to the present time. However, if we realize that moment-by-moment obedience is the goal, each moment as it comes is precious. You see, this is the American dream infiltrating Christianity. Okay, That idea is called syncretism. Syncretism is when two belief systems mix together. Two different worldviews. You can't just add Jesus to what you believe. That's syncretism. Jesus has to replace what you believe. That's why you die to yourself. Paul says it's no longer I that live, but Christ that lives in and through me. You're done. Christ comes in. Grant Osborne has similarly said, luxury and wealth provide the death knell to discipleship. What's he talking about? See, this is our American problem. We have biblical stories of this. Jesus goes to the rich young ruler and he tells him, give away your money. And the guy leaves sad because, wow, he's got a lot and doesn't want to give it away. In America, we've been taught, and you're still being taught. And people still come to America for the American dream. Get the money, get the houses, get the cars. Live the American dream. And yet, we're called to something else by Jesus. If you're chasing after luxury and wealth, then actually you can't be chasing after Jesus. That's why Jesus in Matthew 6 says you cannot serve God and money. You will love one and hate the other. You can only have one master, one Lord. Is Jesus really Lord, your kurios, or is he not? Is he your Caesar? Is he your Lord? Is he your president? Is he your king? D.L. Moody is a famous evangelist in American history, but it was his friend Henry Varley who said to Moody, The world has yet to see what God will do through one man whose heart is completely his. And D.L. Moody said, I want to be that man. And he went on to start a Bible college, a missions movement that sent over 30,000 men and women around the globe. And he is known as one of the preeminent evangelists that existed. Great works, D.L. Moody. Why? Because he sought to do something to be wholly surrendered to God. Moody understood total surrender to God. Let's look back at our text in Matthew 16, 24. One of the things that we're going to have to do is consider the context. Jesus is in Caesarea Philippi, a very pagan city known for gross sexual perversion and idolatrous worship. Peter has just confessed that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, And then Jesus begins to tell the disciples that he has to go to Jerusalem to suffer and be killed and be raised from the dead. And so, if we look a couple verses previous, in Matthew 16, verse 21, we find this. It says, From then on, Jesus began to point out to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, be killed. And be raised the third day. Now I I want you to focus on the three things he says have to happen. He's got to suffer. Suffer many things. Then he's got to be killed. And then he's got to be raised. And I want you to think you really could summarize discipleship down into the things that Jesus is going to go through here. Those are the same things that you and I are actually called to go through. To suffer many things. To be killed for the name of Jesus, and then we look forward to the hope of the resurrection, resurrection, to be raised. You'll suffer many things, you'll be killed, and then you'll be raised. That's your life as a Christian. It's not the American dream. That's your life as a follower of Christ. You will follow in the footsteps of your leader and king, Jesus, who suffered many things, was killed, and was raised on the third day. But Peter didn't really get this. So, in the next verse, Matthew 16, verse 22, now remember, Jesus has just told Peter what's going to happen to him. And right before that, Peter has just said, You are the Messiah, you are the Christ. And so, it amazes me that I'm just like this, you're just like this, that we could have our greatest moment and two seconds later have our worst moment. That's how it is in life. Peter says, Jesus, you're the Messiah. And Jesus says, Peter, you are right. God has revealed this to you. I'm going to use you in a great way. I'm going to build my church. The gates of hell will not prevail. And a few seconds later, this happens. After Jesus says he's going to suffer many things, he's going to die, and he's going to be raised, Peter pulls him to the side and says, rebukes him. Oh, no, Lord. Lord. This will never happen to you. This will never happen to you. Peter can't comprehend that the Messiah, his Savior, his Lord, would have to suffer many things, be killed, and be raised. This is not Christ living in Peter. This is Peter boldly thinking like a man focused on earthly things, not eternal things. God's ways are not in sight here at all. Peter is telling God what to do. He's correcting God's plan. How many times do you and I do the same thing? Like, no, God, I don't think that's the best way. I think this other way will be better. Let's do it my way instead. No, God, to suffer many things, to die and be raised, no, that's that's not good. How about we just do it a different way so we don't have to suffer many things and we don't have to die. But I still want the resurrection. Isn't that how we think? What? What? what well, does not make sense? Sure it is. You do the same thing. Every time God tells you to do something, and you're like, no, I don't want to do that. You're thinking earthly, just like Peter's thinking earthly. You see, God's plan and Jesus working with God the Father in this are on the same page. But Peter's not on the same page. See, Peter's seeing Jesus, his friend, his mentor, his Lord. And he's seeing Jesus, and he's thinking, no. This is not going to happen, Jesus. No one's going to kill you. We're not going to let them kill you. Now listen, just back up a few minutes. You're the same way with your friends, right? There's even a level on an earthly level where where we're kind of supposed to be that way, right? We stand up for each other, right? We defend the homeless. We stand up for justice. You don't let little kids get trampled on by big bullies, right? And so in a sense, Peter's thinking that way. But here there's something more at stake. There's a whole kingdom at stake. And that's where Peter's missing the boat. Because Peter is seeing with earthly eyes instead of eternal eyes. And that's the same thing that you and I do. In verse 23, Matthew 16, 23. Jesus turns and says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me because you're not thinking about God's concerns, but man's. You see, Peter was not letting God live through him at this moment. Peter had taken charge of his life again, and he was thinking like Peter instead of like Christ. When Jesus harshly rebukes Peter, point blank saying that the way he is thinking is exactly, get this, how Satan thinks, you've got to remember, this is Matthew 16. Back in Matthew chapter 4, Satan had tried to get Jesus to avoid the cross by having Jesus worship him. Now, Peter is trying to get Jesus to avoid the cross. You see, it's the same thing. Remember the temptations in the wilderness. Satan offers Jesus a different way. You don't need to go to the cross. But Jesus says, I have to suffer many things. I have to die. That's the cross. And then I will be raised. And Peter says, no, you don't. There's another way for you to be king. And Jesus says, no, Peter, there's not. You're thinking like Satan. The only way for this to work is to suffer many things, die, and be raised. Peter's trying to get Jesus to avoid the cross. You and me, we try to avoid the cross too. We say, no, we don't need to suffer many things. I don't need to let somebody kill me. But yes, Jesus, I want the resurrection life. I want to be in heaven with you. We do the same thing. Earthly minded when we need to be eternally minded. We don't know ourselves any better than Peter knew himself. The scripture says the heart is deceitfully wicked. Who can know it? You and I are as deceived as Peter. That's why we've got to empty ourselves. Total surrender. White flag. Jesus, run my life. We fast forward to Matthew chapter 26, verses 34 and 35. Peter thinks he's finally got it down. Look at this. He says, says, I'll stand by you. He's not going to deny Jesus. Yet what do we read? I assure you, Jesus said to him, tonight before the rooster crows, you'll deny me three times. Peter thinks he's got it down, but he doesn't. In the garden... A little while later, he does stand by his side, at least briefly. He attacks the soldiers with a sword. But again, this is an attempt to escape the cross. He doesn't understand. Jesus has told them three or four times, I must go to the cross. And Peter is again trying to avoid the cross. He follows Jesus, right? But what happens there? Look in Matthew 26, verses 69 to 75. Now, Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard. Okay? He had followed Jesus. Jesus has been arrested. He's been taken. Okay? Peter wants to know what's going to happen. Okay? He is followed. He's going to be close this time, right? A servant approached him, and she said, You were with Jesus the Galilean too. Now, here he is. Perfect opportunity. Is Jesus his friend, or is he not? Is Peter going to stand up for Jesus? What's he do? He, he denied sure. it in front of everyone. This is not a private denial. This is a public denial. There's other people there. I don't know what you're talking about. Now, this is kind of a low-level denial, that first one. He's just kind of like, I don't, what are you talking about? I don't know what you're talking about. When he had gone out to the gateway, another woman saw him and told those who were there, again, public, this man was with Jesus the Nazarene. Now, he's going to up it a notch here in this denial. Again, he denied it with an oath. I don't know the man. So before it was, I don't know what you're talking about. Now it's, I don't know the man. Who's the man? Jesus. I don't know Jesus. Next, after a little while, those standing there approached him. So again, public, many people. And said to Peter, you certainly are one of them, since even your accent gives you away. Now, one of them being one of Jesus' followers. So now we're point blank. You're with Jesus. You're one of his followers. And what does Peter say? He started to curse and to swear with an oath, I do not know the man. Immediately a rooster crowed, and Peter remembered the words Jesus had spoken. Before the rooster crowed, she will deny him three times, and he went outside and wept bitterly. Now, thankfully, the grace and love and mercy and compassion of God allows for forgiveness. Unlike Judas, who went and hung himself, Jesus finds forgiveness in Jesus. Peter's life is not over. Your life is not over when you've blown it. Christ gives us forgiveness. And that's what he does to Peter. But the point for today is about this total surrender. Peter completely disassociates himself from Jesus. Okay? And that's exactly what the word deny means. What we have here is the perfect. Picture, okay of yes what not to do but this is the same word that we read in our previous passage that you have to deny yourself peter here didn't deny himself he denied jesus but the point is it's the same word so if you want to know what does it mean to deny yourself take up your cross and follow jesus to deny yourself means to do what jesus or to do what peter did to jesus but instead you're supposed to do it to yourself so what did peter do to jesus He said, I don't know the man. I don't hang out with the man. I got nothing to do with the man. I'm completely disassociated with him. Take that same situation and replace the name of Jesus with you. So what does it mean to deny yourself? It means you have nothing to do with yourself. Well, that's kind of weird. How do you do that? You have nothing to do with yourself. You don't know yourself anymore. That's what it means to deny yourself. Peter's maneuver aims to guarantee his personal security in a perilous setting, while asserting his freedom from Jesus and any claim that Jesus might have on his life, past or present. That's what we do. Each instance of Peter's threefold denial involves a statement to a group of people. As I mentioned, it's just public. Peter's denial is not just internal. It's not just a private act in his heart. It's a public act in front of other people. Jesus calls us to deny. Not him. Ourselves. A committal to him is a denial of ourselves. This isn't just self-discipline. okay? It's not just cutting stuff out of your life that shouldn't be there. It calls every would-be follower to no longer live on your own behalf and to forsake that which would promise security for yourself. What was Peter trying to do by cutting himself away from Jesus? He was trying to secure himself. He was trying to make sure that he lived. Think back to the story of Janine. What did Janine say? Her security is with who? The The presence of Jesus. And remember the little um, graph that we put up on the screen in the beginning of, of each week. okay, It's got the circles, and in the middle it's got the, the presence of God represented. It's the presence of God that goes with us. you got to think of it almost as the old Mario Brothers game, and when you get the little invincible buz- bubble, you know, and you can just run through everything, you know, and nothing can touch you. See, it's the presence of Jesus. And so when, when you're going to the jaws of, of hell, okay, the prison— with the presence of Jesus, you know you're protected unless God says it's your time to go. All right? Peter is trying to protect himself. He's doing it from an earthly perspective. He's trying to avoid the nails. He's trying to avoid the cross. He's trying to avoid the suffering. The suffering of many things that Jesus says must happen. The finality of Peter's last denial. Okay? We connect that with what Jesus is calling you and me to, it means that there's a permanent and a complete cutting away of our association with ourselves. That we are completely giving ourselves, totally surrendered to Jesus Christ. Just as Peter claims not to know Jesus, so the self denial that Jesus proclaims involves the renunciation of any obligation to yourself. You're done. It's white flag. You're done. You don't fight anymore between what you want and what Jesus wants. White flag. You're done. Totally surrendered. You're totally given yourself to Jesus. Peter tries to save his own life despite the fact that Jesus has said, you can't keep your life and have life with me. It's a choice, one or the other. So Peter at this point chooses his life. We've all done it. We've done the same thing that Peter does. We've said no to Jesus. We've chosen our life. Maybe someone asked you if you're a Christian and you avoided the issue. You skirted the issue. You didn't really want to say. You didn't want to put yourself with Jesus. You didn't want to deal with them making fun of you. I doubt in our country anybody was going to do anything more than that. We didn't want to be laughed at. Well, Peter wasn't worried so much about being laughed at. Peter was more worried about what you see on the screen the nails from the cross that were literally going to come his way. So, before we point too many fingers at Peter, we better examine ourselves. If Peter keeps trying to save his life, what Jesus was trying to teach him is that he's going to lose his eternal life, earthly or eternal. Your choice. If you save your earthly life, you will lose your eternal life. If you lose your earthly life, you can gain the eternal life. Which one are you focused on? In the first century world, crosses identified those judges <coughs> of setting themselves menacingly against the ways of Rome. To die on a cross means you went against Rome. Okay? They didn't usually crucify Roman citizens. Okay, you went against Rome, and so you ended up on a cross. It was public; they want everyone to see it. This person hanging on the cross has opposed Rome, and here's what Rome does to those who oppose them. And Jesus says, "Take up your cross." We may take up your cross. Well, the criminal, before they're crucified, carries their own cross. Not normally like you see in the movie, the whole cross. It's normally just the top cross beam, okay? But either way, you carry your cross to the place where they're going to crucify you as a sign to everyone that this is what happens when you oppose Rome. What is Jesus calling us to do? He's calling us to oppose our culture, to oppose the earthly world, the earthly kingdom. There will never be a country on the face of this earth that runs in a completely biblical manner until Jesus comes back. They are all earthly kingdoms. They will all be tainted by sin and corruption and greed and evil. Jesus is the only king who will usher in a kingdom that will not be tainted by those things. And so Jesus is saying... That you deny yourself. Okay, you're done. White flag. You take up your cross. You come die with me. You oppose the culture and the values of this world and this kingdom. Because you endorse and follow the values of my kingdom. That's what Jesus is calling us to. Cross bearing is death to yourself. It is white flag extreme. Extreme. It is us dead so Christ can live in us. We must be completely emptied out so that Christ can fill us, and that's the problem. We don't want to be completely emptied out. We only want to be partially emptied out. We want a little bit of Jesus so we can go to heaven and a whole bunch of us. And Jesus says, you can't have that. You need to die to yourself. So, back in Matthew 16, 24, when Jesus says to his disciples, If anyone wants to come with me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Notice there's kind of a sandwich structure here. Okay, You've got to come with me and to follow me. Well, those basically mean about the same. So, think of it as a sandwich. That's your two pieces of bread. Come with me and follow me. They mean the same thing. And what's packed in the middle? What's the meat and the lettuce? What is it? Deny yourself and take up your cross. Deny yourself and take up your cross. That's the two phrases, sandwiched in between the coming and the following. The two phrases, deny yourself and take up your cross. They're not occasional. It's not once in a while. It's all-consuming, complete surrender, total surrender, white flag. We saw in Peter's negative example that to deny is to completely disassociate from. That's what we have to do. Disassociate with yourself and what you want. Jesus tells us that as we disassociate from ourselves, that is how we gain the life of Christ. This is the only time in the Gospels that the word is used like this. To deny yourself. It's not in the Gospels anywhere else. The only other time in the whole New Testament that it's used is in 2 Timothy 2.13, talking about how God can't deny himself. So you are called to disassociate from yourself, but God cannot disassociate from himself. That's the only two times it's used in the Bible in a reflexive manner. That reflexive means referring to yourself, what you do to yourself. Okay? You can deny other people. That's used all the time. right? But to deny yourself, it's only used that way in those two places. No more you. Let's go die. Like, what, are you insane, Kevin? What do you mean, let's go die? I didn't say it. Jesus said it, right? Suffer many things, die, and then? And then what? Be
1: raised.
0: Be raised. If you want to be raised, you first have to die. And before you die, you're going to suffer many things. So if you really want to be raised, then you got to go Die. you got to die. You can't be raised if you're not dead first. So why are we trying not to die if we want to be raised? Maybe we don't really want to be raised. But if you really want to be raised, then you got to do what first? Die. Die. And before you die, or maybe a different way of saying it is, the path to your death is going to include what? Many sufferings. Many sufferings. The same thing that befell Jesus. (coughs) Are you fascinated or are you a follower of Jesus? It's one thing to be fascinated by Jesus, David Garland says. It's another thing to follow one who will be killed. Now, election season is, is coming upon us and so I don't pay a lot of attention to the political meanderings. But enough to know what's going on. The bottom line is, people don't want to pick a loser. Right? They want to pick a winner. All right? And if they don't think they can win, they do what? They drop out of the race. All right? And so that's why you end up with just a couple people that actually run for president. Okay? Everybody else either runs out of money, um, which is in America the main way you get elected, um, which that should tell us something right there. right? No money, no election. What's that tell you? Anyways. So... No one wants to follow a loser, right? Well, it looks like a losing proposition if it's suffer many things and die. But you got to focus on the last part. Be raised. That's where it's at. The hope of Christianity is in the being raised. It's the resurrection. Paul tells us in Corinthians, if there is no resurrection, we're the biggest fools in the world. We're completely dumb. But on the other hand, if there is a resurrection, then we should put all our eggs in one basket, all our hopes in one thing. You see, when you do investments with money, they tell you don't put all your eggs in one basket because something could happen. The company could go broke all of a sudden. and You lost everything. So you should diversify, not with Jesus. You don't diversify with Jesus. It's all your eggs in one basket. It's, It's white flag. It's Jesus. I'm all in. Everything I have, it's yours. It's in. You put everything in. You're all banking on one thing. We're going to suffer many things. We're going to die and we're going to be raised. What is discipleship? R.T. France says discipleship is a life of at least potential martyrdom. See, the problem again in America is that we talk about martyrdom, but you and I don't know anybody that's been martyred, especially not in America. Nothing like that happens here. Well, give it 20 years. Maybe it will. You know, I've, I've said before, the Chinese church, you know what they pray for us? They pray that we would be persecuted. They see us as weak. We're praying for the Chinese church that they would stop being persecuted and get freedom. The Chinese church is praying for us that we would get persecuted. You see, what's happened is we've gotten fat and lazy. we got too much freedom and too much money and too much fun. It's ruined us. And so the Chinese actually pray... It's not just the Chinese, other people in persecuted countries, because here's what they know that we don't know. Persecution drives you to Jesus, or it makes you leave him. More than the two. Discipleship is is a life of at least potential martyrdom. You have a clear choice. Clear choice is thus offered between self-preservation at all costs and the risky business of following Jesus. Now, the reason it's a risky business is you don't know what's going to happen. But in a sense, you do know. You're going to suffer many things. You're going to die, and you're going to be raised. That's it. So we do know. But yes, you don't know when and how. Grant Osborne says, until the kingdom reality outweighs every consideration, even one's own life, one is not a true follower. Just let that sink in. Think about that for a minute. Does this jive with what Jesus says? Jesus says, if you want to follow me, you've got to do what? Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. Until the kingdom, reality outweighs every consideration, even one's own life, one is not a true follower. So God's kingdom has to be more important than your own life. Think about people who give up their life for something. You know, whether you think of firemen or policemen, whether you think of people in military or, or whatever, they give up their life for somebody. There's a story in the Bible, David's mighty men. And one, one day David, he said, man, how I wish I could have a drink of water from that well. And his men, he didn't ask them to do this, he had just made this comment. And his men during the night went through the enemy lines, went through the battle zone to go to that well and get a glass of water for David. And they brought it back. I don't know if they woke him up in the middle of the night or exactly how it went down. But they brought it back and they gave it to him and said, David, you said you wanted a glass of water from that well. We got it for you. They didn't have to tell David what they did to get it. He knew they had to go through all these enemy lines. They risked their lives. They could have been killed at any moment for a glass of water. That's not that they needed water. It was just from that well. It was better water, I guess. It was good. That's the devotion. They weren't concerned about their own life. That's what Jesus is calling us to. To not be concerned about your own life. Jesus said back in Matthew 6 in the Sermon on the Mount that if you'll seek first the kingdom of God, Matthew 6.33, that he'll provide, he'll take care of what you need here. At the same time, he tells us in our passage in Matthew 16 that you're going to need to suffer many things. You're going to need to die so you can be raised. John Nolan, another scholar and commentator, says... The call is so to behave that the anticipated outcome may naturally be the loss of one's life. What does that mean? It means the call that Jesus is calling us to expects that you're going to die. That's the norm that you will die. So we got to change our thinking. Because our thinking is normally we shouldn't die. Right? But actually in the scriptures... How many of the original apostles were all killed for their faith? All of them but the apostle John. They tried to kill him in boiling oil. It didn't work. All of them. I was reading earlier about Timothy. You know, Paul mentored and discipled Timothy. Timothy, in the city of uh, Ephesus, okay, the Artemis, Diana, idolatry that occurs there when timothy was an older man he was walking down the city one one day down the streets in the city and it happened to be the day of the feast of this goddess and as he saw all these people he was just exasperated and his heart was just you know heavy he said why do you worship this this false god this is idolatry let god fill your hearts and the priests of this idolatrous cult took their sticks and began to beat him. And they beat him until he was dead. That's how another one of Paul's disciples died. A martyr. It's the expectation, anticipated outcome. Peter's confession in 1616 prompts the first of these four predictions of Jesus' passion and his resurrection, which begins, you know, this last portion of, of Matthew's gospel that we've just looked at a few verses from. As we think about what it means to deny yourself and to take up your cross, you've got to begin to ask yourself, are you really totally surrendered? Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was killed during the war with Hitler, said when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. And my last quote for today from Billy Graham. "Your younger people may not know him. The older people in the room know who he is. Billy Graham has ministered to probably more people than anybody that's still alive. Millions of people. He said biblical boldness for Christ is a fountain that bursts forth from a satisfied soul. Now, this is a whole other message, but what he's partly saying in here is that when you really learn to love and enjoy Christ, which is a journey we're all on, okay, when that happens, you'll have boldness for Jesus. Biblical boldness for Christ that flows over. Even when facing the authorities, Peter overflows with the gospel. Referring to Jesus seven times in Acts chapter 4, verses 10 to 12. Remember, this is the same Peter we've already talked about. In the book of Acts, after the resurrection, after he's filled with the Holy Spirit, Peter's the one that speaks the Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 4, verses 10 to 12, he talks about Jesus seven times in those few verses. He says, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Boldness springs from something that is happening deep inside. And Jesus has changed his life. Jesus can change your life, my life, everything that we're looking for and longing for, you find in Jesus. So when we look at the idea of total surrender, the key idea of total surrender on the screen, that we dedicate our lives to God's purpose. That's total surrender, guys. That's white flag. That's all in. Your whole life, not part of your life. Which is why the verse for the week is Romans 12, 1. Therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual worship. Your whole self, people. Your whole bodies. Total surrender, white flag, everything in, nothing held back. In just a moment, when we go to our table talk time, we're going to take this and we need to break this down. We need to look at where in our lives are, are we lacking this? Where are things not where they should be? What is being held back that should not be held back? There's a Another martyr, I would like to briefly tell you about. As an older man, in the middle of a situation that a Christian, he's been taken, is about to have his life taken from him. The city prefect, the ruler, his name was Urbicus. And Urbicus looked at the old man and he said, Sir, I have but one question for you. Are you a Christian? And Ptolemais, whose reputation was as a man who loved truth above all else, answered simply with one word Yes. Guards, Herbicus said, take him away and execute him. Your honor, another man stepped forward from the, the trial, and his name was Lucius. He said, What are the charges? This man is not a criminal. He's not an adulterer. He's not a fornicator. He's not a murderer, a thief, or a robber. He's broken no other civil laws. All he has said is he's a Christian. Such a sentence of death for such an honorable thing will not bring honor to yourself, Prefect Urbicus, nor to Emperor Pius, <coughs> nor to the emperor's son, the philosopher, nor to the sacred senate. Urbicus looked at Lucius questioningly. He said, it seems to me that you must be a Christian as well. Again, the answer was simply yes. Good. Then the old man will not die alone. Guards, take this one too. Urbicus expected Lucius to try to flee, but he simply bowed his head in respect and said, My Lord, I am grateful. No longer will I have to live among such unjust and evil rulers. I will happily go live with the Father and King of Heaven. At Lucius' proclamation, another man stepped forward and said, I too am a Christian, that he could share in the punishment, but more importantly, the reward of being part of Jesus' kingdom. The next couple of verses in our text in Matthew 16 talk about the fact that Jesus is coming back and he will judge and everyone will have to give an account you and me individually for how we lived our life. There is a reward. It seems very crazy to read these stories of people who died for Jesus of people who not only died but in the story I just read you There's a man dying because he's a Christian, and someone else says, Well, I'm a Christian too. Let me die also. We can't even begin to understand that type of thinking. And may I say it's because I think that we have a very shallow Christianity and a very shallow relationship with Jesus. That we are still trying to hang on to our life here. And Jesus said, if you hold on to your life here, you will lose the life that I have for you. But if you will give up the life that you have here, I will give you a more abundant life that is eternal. Might we wrestle with that and raise our white flag. Father, we come to you this morning thanking you for the example in Jesus Thanking you for the thousands and millions who have gone before us. The cloud of witnesses, Lord, that has shown us that, yes, it is possible. It's more than possible. It's doable. Millions have willingly given up their lives to be part of the kingdom of God. Might we be so bold as well. In Christ's name, amen.